Our gospel reading this morning is from John chapter 4, verses 39 through 42. And this is uh, on the heels of a story where Jesus meets a woman at a well, a Samaritan woman, uh, someone who the disciples weren't even sure he ought to be talking to her. And yet, he does. And he meets her where she is and tells her what she needs to know. And as we pick up the story in verse 39, we see what comes next. Before we read, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. And God, we thank you for your word which you have given to us. We pray that this morning you would help us to hear your word. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us minds to understand. And give us hearts that are ready to be changed. More and more into the people that you have made us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. John 4, starting in verse 39, said, Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Turning then to our New Testament reading from Hebrews chapter 4, verses, six, or no, verses 12 through 16, we hear, for the word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We are currently in a series in the book of Genesis, and just to take you back a little bit to where we began, uh, we began in Genesis chapter 1, which makes sense. And in Genesis chapter 1, we saw God as the creator of everything. And uh, we talked about how there's a difference in viewpoint and perspective from chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so in chapter 1, it's like you're looking at uh, the whole of creation, but kind of really zoomed out. So you see kind of uh, the whole planet in focus and sky and uh, seas and land and animals and people, and you see the whole thing, sun, moon, and stars, all of it out there before you. And then in chapter 2, we kind of zoom in, and we see uh, kind of from 
standing on the ground, feet on the dirt uh, perspective of God's creation. And it's really interesting, and this is what we talked about at the time uh, when going through those two chapters, that chapter one, we are looking at the greatness and the power and the majesty of God, the creator. But in chapter two, that's still present, but now where the focus is, is on his intimate relationship with his people. And I want you to keep those two things in view because it's really easy to kind of slide to one side or the other in, in a way that we miss both. And we really have to hold on to both. That God is the one who is the transcendent, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of heaven and earth. And yet, comes close and is personally involved and cares about uh, the, the details that we would think, well, no, he's got too much else going on. But this is the same thing that we just read in Psalm 8 in our call to worship this morning. That David, when he said, you know, when I consider the works of your hands, uh, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. And so it's like he goes out and he looks at the night sky and he says, this God is amazing who has done all of these great things. And then he says, but when I start thinking about that, my next thought is, well, what is mankind that you're mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? It's a good question. And yet that is exactly what Scripture holds, uh, or who Scripture holds God out to be, is the one who is the all-powerful creator of everything, and yet the one who comes close, both uh, transcendent and also imminent. Last week, we looked at uh, Genesis chapter 15, and it was a time when God takes Abram out and says, look at all the stars. And this is when he is promising Abram that he's going to give him a great family. He's made this promise before, and now Abram is wondering, how do I know that you're going to do this? And we talked last week how then God takes him outside and says, well, look at all these stars. I'm going to give you that many kids. And we said that, you know, I'd always taken that before as God just saying, well, I'll promise you more things. Is that better? And it's like, no, that's not better. But that's not what he was doing. That what God is doing is taking Abram outside and showing him all the stars as a way of showing Abram his resume and saying, this is what I have done in the past. Why wouldn't you trust me with what I'm telling you? about your future. The God who can create uh, all of these galaxies can give you a son. Oh, well, you put it that way. <laughs> and so that was the way that um, that, that kind of conversation went. But that's what we were looking at last week, is this looking at God as the all-powerful creator again. Well, this week, guess where we're going to go? <laughs> we're going to shift that focus again and look at God coming close uh, to his people, and surprisingly, maybe not exactly to the people that we would have suspected. So here we are. Uh, this is Genesis chapter 16. It says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, The Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my slave. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarah, Sarai said. So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian slave Hagar 
and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar, and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my slave in your arms, and now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your slave is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. All right, we're actually going to pause there for a second. Do you hear what's happening? We have Abram and Sarai. God has made this promise uh, to give him this amazingly large family. And as we've been following the story, we keep tally of how many kids he still has at this point. And so far, it's just remained at zero. And when he was first called, he was called from uh, out of Ur of the Chaldeans to go to the land that God is going to show him, and he's supposed to leave his whole family, and, but he doesn't. He brings his nephew Lot, and we said one reason why he might have brought his nephew Lot is maybe, since I don't have kids, maybe God's going to build a family through my nephew. Maybe that's how it's going to work. And we saw that instead, that just caused problems. It's caused multiple so far, it will continue to do so. <laughs> But it's not through Lot. It's gonna, and so uh, then Abram was like, well, maybe it's going to be through this servant that I have. That's what we looked at in chapter 15. And God says, no, it's not going to be through your servant. It's going to be through you, Abram. And we're going to see in a little bit, Abram's 86 years old at this point. And so, okay, not sure how that's going to work. And so Abram and Sarai, apparently having this conversation of God is promising children, but, you know, and Sarah's like, oh, I don't know. Maybe he is going to give you children, and maybe he's not going to give me children. Maybe that's what he means. That could make sense, right? And so we have this plan. Sarah's like, why don't you go sleep with Hagar, and that will be the way that God builds your family, even though maybe not mine. It seems like it makes sense. And so the question that we have is, is this step here an act of trusting God or not? Is this an act of faith and faithfulness or is this faithlessness? Because on the one hand, it seems like they're doing this because they believe the promise of God, right? That God is going to build a family through Abram. On the other hand, this isn't God's way, is it? In fact, we see several problems here (laughs) uh, besides just the um, kind of the obvious of sleeping with the slave. And several problems here. (laughs) But but the way that Hagar is treated, she is not treated like a person, is she? No. She's a possession. She's a thing. She's an object. This is one of the things that Abram acquired when he was down in Egypt. He had gone down to Egypt before, and we had talked about his faithlessness <laughs> during that episode. And as he came back, he came back with lots of stuff, and Hagar is part of that stuff. And so they're treating her that way. Of course, once she becomes uh, pregnant, I don't know if you could have seen this coming but things are going to get tense in the family household. (laughs) 
And they do. And they get tense. And so what happens is Sarai is like, ah, I don't like this. And Abram responds, well, first, first she blames him. <laughs> You're responsible for this. I mean, I put my slave in your arms. I told you to do this and all that. But it's still your fault. Okay, fine. But then when she says, um, now she despises me, what is Abram's response? Hey, your slave, in your hands, you do with her whatever you think is best. And what is it that Sarah thinks is the best thing to do in this case? She mistreats her to the point that she runs away. Well, isn't this just going great? This is not going well at all. Let me tell you, we're going to get further in the story with actually where we're headed with this, but we've got to pause right here. What's happening with Abram and Sarai is not something that only happens with Abram and Sarai. We live this out all the time, where we take something that God has said and that we are supposed to trust him in, and we kind of do, but you know, he's not doing it as fast as we thought he would, or maybe he's not doing it the way that we thought he would. And so, well, maybe he needs us to just do things our own way for a bit, you know, just to kind of get the ball rolling, and then he can take it from there. Sound familiar? We start trying to get to godly ends, but not by godly means. Guess what happens? <laughs> Just causes a mess. This is what happened uh, with Abram and Sarai. This is what happens all the time. Uh, we see that same kind of thing, by the way, not just in this story, but as you go the rest of the way throughout Scripture, we see people playing this kind of game to try to get to godly ends, but not through godly means. And we see, uh, well, no, I'm not even going to go there. I'll just let you find those stories on your own. They're plentiful. We're going to continue the story because this is where we really want to go today. Verse 7, pick up here. Uh, And we pick up here because at this point in the story, it seems like, we're done with Hagar, right? If she is just this slave, this object, this less than human who is to be used and abused, and then when of no more purpose, cast aside, well, then she's not really part of this story. And we can continue on with Abram and Sarah. You say, okay, well, that was a mistake, and now we move forward. And that's not the way the story goes. Because as it turns out, <laughs> Hagar is a person. Right? Okay, here we go. So here she is. She uh, is being mistreated, and so she uh, flees. And it says, starting in verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was a spring that is beside the road to Shur. In other words, she's on her way back to Egypt. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, Where have you come from, and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, Go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now pregnant, and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. 
His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son he had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. All right, there's definitely some weird stuff in there that we're not going to unpack today. <laughs> but where we want to focus is on uh, the way in which this interaction takes place. When Hagar gets to the point of saying, you are the God who sees me. That's different than saying, you know, just you're the God who knows everything. You're the God who sees your creation. This is personal. You are the God who sees me, Hagar, in my misery and in my pain. Had Abram seen Hagar? Not really. Had Sarai seen Hagar? Not really. That didn't mean she wasn't seen. God knew her, and he knew her well. And he meets her at her low point. And it is confusing as to what it is he tells her to do here. Hey, why don't you go back? And for us, we read that and go, is that such a good idea? Why? Why should she go back? And I have my ideas, but frankly, they're just guesses. I don't know. But that was what uh, was for her to do in this moment, was to go back. But as she goes back, she goes back different than she left, doesn't she? Because now she goes back not as someone who is unknown, but someone who is intimately known by the creator of the universe. This is one of those uh, themes also that runs through the whole of the Bible, is that God sees you. And now, let me ask you this. When you hear that God sees you, do you hear that as a threat or as a comfort? It depends, doesn't it? It depends on a couple things. It depends, one, on what it is that uh, you are currently doing in life. If you are in uh, a season of rebellion against God, you may hear that as a very threatening thing. It also depends on your view of God. If the way that you have understood God your whole life is someone who's just out to get you and stop you from doing things that otherwise would be just fine to do, you may hear that God sees you as a threat. And there's a sense in which that threat sort of thing does come through throughout Scripture. And you see people who are doing what they should not do, and guess what happens all throughout Scripture? Is you have... Uh, these occasions. What happens when the kings of Israel are doing what they should not do and they think they're getting away with it? God sends them prophets to say, God sees what you're doing. 
He knows what you're up to. This happens famously with the story of David, right, and Bathsheba. David has, um, well, we'll not go through the whole story, but David has slept with someone who is not his wife and then had her husband killed in war. So, you know, nice cover-up. And afterwards, everything's fine. What's the problem? And then Nathan, the prophet, comes to him and tells him a story about someone who took someone else's sheep instead of um, one from their own flock. He says, what should be done with that person? And they was, ah, he should be killed. Nathan says, you are that man. In other words, God has seen what you have been up to. We see the same kind of thing when Jesus interacts with Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians who come to him and they're asking him questions, but not because they actually want to learn about who he is or the kingdom of God. Instead, they're trying to trap him and trip him up and cause others to not follow him. And if you look at the way in which Jesus responds to him or responds to them, he sees through all the masks that they're putting up all the ways that they try to deflect and to uh, show that they are the good people and that you know, somebody else is the bad people. And Jesus sees right through it, right to their heart. He knows what they're thinking, it says. <laughs> and he answers them not with what they are putting forward, but who they really are. And it's kind of a threat. <laughs> but there's another sense in which To be known, truly known, ought to be a comfort. And I think if we had uh, the right view of who God is and what kind of a relationship it is that he desires to have with us, we would understand the comfort side of this much more. When it says that God is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit in Psalm 34, This is the God who comes close to us in our pain. How many of you have ever felt completely overlooked and underappreciated because of things that you have done that no one noticed, no one saw, no one said thank you, no one ever got you that attaboy or girl. It just went unnoticed. And you start thinking, why do I even bother? You ever been there? In the New Testament, Paul tells us that we're actually to do all that we do as though we're working for the Lord and not for human masters. We can only do that if we understand this principle that God sees us. He knows the things that we are giving ourselves to, the ways that we are pouring ourselves out for others. And if nobody else sees it and nobody else notices it, that's okay. You know, Jesus says, when you gave a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, you did it for me. You are not going to become famous and rich 
in this world and get ahead in this world because you're giving a cup of cold water to a little one. That doesn't mean it's not important. Jesus says, when you do that, you did it for me. I see you. I see you in that moment. I know your heart in that moment. And that is when we are serving, but it also is not just when we are uh, being underappreciated for those kinds of things. This is also, he knows our heart better than we know ourselves. This is a period in our history where it has been easier than ever for people uh, to craft false versions of themselves to put out into the public. That's always been a thing. You can see that, you know, with the Pharisees interacting with Jesus. They've got this version of who they are, and he tells them, no, you are whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but you're dead and rotting on the inside. That's always been a thing. But now we can do that intentionally and from a distance. And so the way in which people will use social media is exactly for that express purpose is putting a false reality in front of everybody so they say, this is who I really am. And yet the studies have shown the uh, link between the use of social media and incidents of depression is pretty highly correlated. (laughs) And I think a part of that is because we put this version out there of ourselves and we see these false versions of everybody else, but then we know That's not who we really are. And we don't stack up to how everybody else seems to be. And so we become those who are crushed in spirit. But what Genesis 16 reminds us is that God sees us as who we really are. Really are. And he knows. And here's the crazy part. The reason we put all these false versions out there is because we feel like if somebody actually knew who we really are, we would be rejected. That's not the message of Scripture, is it? Instead, it's that he knows who we really are, and he doesn't reject us. Think about Peter. This is crazy. Peter thought he knew who Peter was, and Peter was wrong. (laughs) Jesus knew who Peter really was. Peter says, if I have to fight and die alongside of you, that is what I will do. I will go to death defending you. And Jesus says, tonight you're going to deny me three times. Now, who was right? Jesus knew Peter better than Peter knew himself. And in that moment, when Peter realizes that Jesus is right... He is crushed in spirit. But that's not the end of the story. Jesus knew Peter was going to deny him, and yet that was not the end of Peter's story. Peter was not rejected. But instead, after Jesus is raised again from the dead, he uh, has Peter come before him and he says, feed my sheep. (laughs) Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And three times restores that relationship because it wasn't ever about Peter getting everything perfect. And so he didn't have to put a perfect version of himself before Jesus. He didn't have to put a perfect version of himself before God and everyone. He just has to follow Jesus. 
in all of his stumbling and faithlessness and getting things wrong along the way, just genuinely, really following him. We look at um, lots of different images and metaphors of what the relationship with God is like. Father is one that comes through quite a bit (laughs) in Scripture. I think another one that the Bible probably would have used had this been, there been this terminology back then is coach. <laughs> Just this idea of when we are learning and when we are growing in something new, we don't get it perfect. But the expectation isn't that we're going to get it perfect. The expectation is that we will continue in that relationship and continue to be coachable and continue to grow as we go. When we look back In Genesis 16, and we see Abram and Sarai. What they were doing in this moment, I said, is this faithfulness or faithlessness? (laughs) Eh, It's kind of a mixed bag, honestly. It seems like a bit of faithfulness, but also with faithlessness. Yes, we believe God is going to give Abram children, but maybe not unless we do it ourselves. And you know what? That's not the end of the story for Abram and Sarai. God knows them too. And with Hagar, she doesn't get everything right either. As we look at the way in which she interacts with Abram and Sarai, that doesn't mean God's done with her either. But what it means is that God knows them, who they are and where they are, and knows them for real. Not who they present themselves as, but who they really are. And the call for them is the same as the call for us. Come follow me. Continue in that walk with him. Talked at the beginning about Genesis 1 and 2 of the God who's the creator of everything, and yet the God who comes close to his people. And then we looked at how, uh, in Genesis 15, God shows him the stars as resume. (laughs) And here's what I want us to think about today. As we look at this idea of God knowing us, really knowing us, and yet instead of knowing us and rejecting us, knowing us, and giving his life for us. I want us to think about, how, about his resume. Say, if he really knows us, he knows who we are, he knows who we've been, he also knows who we are going to be. And he is the one who is working us towards who we are going to be. So when you look out at the stars, when you look at the trees in bloom, and you think about the creator who can do these amazing things, remember that this is a very powerful God who comes close to us, meets us in our pain, 
in our pain and in our suffering meets us in a way that sometimes feels threatening, but it's ultimately the greatest comfort. And then take the next step in trusting and following him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.